Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 181 today. Uh, we're going to be discussing psychedelic science with Matthew Johnson. Uh, Matthew is a professor and drug researcher at John Hopkins University. He focuses on uh, behavior, drug addiction, and psychedelics. And uh, he's uh, he's done an amazing job so far. And actually, you can check his podcast out with Lex Friedman. Highly recommended. Excellent podcast. Um, but before we get started here, why don't you head on over to Indra's Web. Indra'sWeb.org is the platform we created uh, to connect open minds. So if you want to discuss hypotheses, theories on psychedelics, ancient civilizations, outside the box type stuff, head on over there, set up a profile, and uh, we're, we're getting some action on there. So I, I really like that. Uh, and when you're done with there, you can head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. We do have a connected Discord uh, chat, and uh, you can get access to all of our exclusive episodes and segments for just $2 a month. Um, I just posted some recent ones up there. We have Avi Loeb. Um, we've got uh, Andrew Gallimore. So there's some real good ones up there right now. And hopefully maybe we'll get Matthew Johnson to do a, a quick one at the end here when we're done. Um and uh, that's it. Without further ado, welcome on Mind Escape, Matthew. Thanks a lot, Mike Maurice. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. Um, so I had been reading some of your papers um, in the last few years, and then I saw you on uh, Lex Friedman. I'm like, oh, that's that guy I've been reading his papers. Let's get him on the show. So, uh, so I appreciate you coming on and being generous with your time. Uh, I want to jump right into it, though. Um, and ask you something. There was a paper from a few years ago. I think it was 2017, maybe. Uh, it was a Duke study on fMRIs, um, where they discuss brain activity and like they discuss obviously how like they measure brain activity through blood flow, and it's not like some sort of neural connection thing you see like CGI in the movies and stuff where they're scanning your brain. It's actually measuring blood flow to certain areas, and they found. 56 peer-reviewed papers they published, I think, uh, or they uh, went through like 90 fMRI experiments. There was like 65 subjects, and they found that the brain function when they initially went in to study them was completely different when they had the patients come back and study them. So like whatever function they were using the first time, most of those functions were not the same the second time. So mm. how do we know what's going on physically in the brain? Obviously, there's anecdotal and data that we can collect, but... How do we know physically what's going on in the brain? Oh, that's a great, great question, Mike. And it, it, it up front, I'll let you know, this is this is one of the reasons I'm not primarily a neuroimager. <laughs> you know, I'm a behavioral science scientist, and so I mean, neuroimaging can be real. I don't want to say there's no good science. There's certainly good science, but it's a really sketchy area where it's. There's a lot of garbage that's published that's um, it, it, it's really easy to you know pull slights of hand. It's really easy to um, 
publish the intended interpretation um, no matter whether the results show a particular result or its complete opposite. I see this a lot in, in, in research on, on drugs of abuse. You know, you see a certain area that's less active on a, on a certain task when they're on a, on a drug or in the users compared to a control group. And you say, you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's less active, you say, aha, the drug has, all the use of that drug has impaired that area that can, is associated with this, doing this type of task, this type of cognitive function. And then if you had another result where that area was, was more active in the users or when they're on the drug, the interpretation is, aha, they're so impaired with that cognitive function that that area has to work extra hard to compensate for it. So it's mm. like, you know, there's that. And then there's all of the classic kind of fallacies that you see more broadly in neuroscience where, um, you know, even in, in non-human neuroscience, even though you're on a relatively speaking firmer ground there um, uh, with non-human, um, non-imaging science, you know, stuff like interpreting, oh, we see some area an association between some event, some task, and an area, and um, you conclude that's the area that controls it, or that's the seat of that of that function. And you know, you could it could potentially be just one of you know countless areas that are involved playing some role in a causal net that you know you haven't you know, fully decoded. And so there's all these issues. And then there's these power issues, like a whole mm. lot of, and I mean, people are bad enough interpreting what inferential statistics, what P values actually mean in straight up behavioral sciences where most people can see and, 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 and understand very directly what is being measured. Um, and in fact, research has shown that a whole lot of scientists that should know better, like, massively um, uh, misinterpret what even like a p-value is supposed to tell you. Um, but then you take that into, you know, imaging where the, the, the results are that much more indirectly, you know, related to the, to the, um, the numbers that are being crunched. And there's just a whole lot of hand waving, a whole lot of tricks that can go on in between. And you can, there's a very high chance for what are called type one errors, so false positives. So you think, aha, there's a significant effect of this drug, you know, injection or of this, you know, comparing this group versus that group, that type of thing. And it could be a chance finding. And we're even on, you know, sort of a standard p value for a threshold for judging if it's likely chance alone, a sort of 0.05, meaning. You know, if uh, there's a one in 20, you know, chance that this result wasn't the effect that we're interested in, but is just um, uh, chance alone, just the, through noise. If you modeled this a thousand times with different distributions of the uh, uh, of the data, you would see an effect like this, mm. you know, every once in a while. And that, so it could be just chance. And so, you know, and, and so you can have a, this false positive where you get a 0.05 or whatever your threshold is and that you can, cause it can be adjusted, but you know, you can conclude there's an effect, but it's really just a chance finding. So the chances of that are even more likely, uh, you know, with imaging compared to, um, you know, other areas of science. And then your example points to, I haven't even gotten to that one yet. <laughs> like all of these sort of assumptions about just sort of like basic models of, uh, that, that, uh, you know, kind of these framing effects or 
you know, like something has changed more systemically, you know, from like in the case you, you provide it from one day to another within the individual and sort of your statistical analyses are had been assuming at least some commonality when conducting those within subject analyses. So mm. this might be a case where the analyses you're applying are more like between subjects analysis to a degree in the sense that you cannot assume quite so strongly the fact that this person in a lot of or this scan in a lot of ways is going to be similar in in many ways except for the manipulated variable compared to this you know the 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 image taken on this other day so anyway that's just right a sprinkling of 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 the reasons that why i'm not a neuroimager i i really (laughs) but but there's a whole lot we can find out i mean so neuroscience is complex i mean basic receptor you know in terms of like site of action receptor pharmacology at least in terms of the site of action like we've got that we know a whole lot there in terms of a whole lot of evidence suggesting that the the serotonin 2a a subtype of serotonin res- receptor is the primary area responsible for for mediating the effects of of the classic psychedelics mm-hmm. and, and that serotonin release is a primary mechanism of action for for MDMA, um, and there's other receptor effects, but then we go into another level with post-receptor signaling activity. So what happens? It's not just you hit this receptor or not. I mean, serotonin hits these two-way receptors too, and it's not psychedelic. So right. we know something about the differences between those differential pathways within the neurons, within the cells that are cascaded. And then you have in the active, you know, effects on other transmitter systems like glutamate, so so-called downstream effects. And then you have whether areas different areas are activated or made less active and then you have the synchronization of that activity to what degree that activation or lack of activation is related across areas which is a clue into whether there's probably underlying communication through neurotransmission between those areas so those i just went through like a whole lot a whole range of levels of analysis that are involved and we do know you know it 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 gets it's get it gets messy the kind of the further in you get and so you have to be aware of what level you're operating at and you know so certain things we know very solidly and some things were you know kind of we're out there and we need to keep exploring and and need to stay rigorous and and know what's preliminary and what has truly been established yeah and you bring up um the 5-HT2A receptors and that, and the, you know, there's a lot of talk of the default mode network. I think you actually, did, is it your paper with Roland Griffiths where it was a Solvia study with, with imaging? Is that, I don't, I don't remember exactly whose study that was, but it was showing uh, about, you know, the kappa opioid receptor and how the traditional psychedelic experience might not be at the heart of the default mode network there might be something else going on because obviously the kappa opioid receptors and salvi is a completely different animal right so that was a paper that manoj das um was was the lead author on and and um um also very much key to that paper was my, my other colleague fred barrett and so yeah i was part of that team and we found and I'd done previous work with with Salvinor and A in people this was an extension going into into um, fMRI with Salvia and yeah one of the things that shake sh- shook out is that you know you had a, a similar decoupling of the default mode network like 
has been observed with classic psych with with, with psilocybin, so a classic psychedelic, and um and, and with other you know so with LSD, um, another classic psychedelic, but you know we discussed in there that okay, while some people broadly call this a psychedelic, you know, it it's certainly very different in a number of ways, and it and it I think more importantly it adds to a line of a, a list of drugs that are clearly not, no one would call psychedelic. So amphetamine, um, uh, THC is in the group. Now you could call that a minor psychedelic, but you know, with amphetamine and with alcohol. So another sort of very few people would call that psychedelic. This whole list of compounds that have a similar effect on the default mode network. So that was one of my first questions when the, the default mode network findings were, you know, not just report it, but the kind of the concern being, you know, more through the media that the wide touting of, aha, we found mm -hmm. this is the the quintessential mechanism of psychedelics. And there's this kind of neat, just neat story that fits together. It's like too neat. <laughs> That's it. it. Should be a, a well. They a, love a that flag. every week. We figured out consciousness. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't. Right, right. You figured out <laughs> maybe one little step in a much, you know, um, you know you know, larger constellation, but the whole idea of the default mode network decoupling was the quintessential psychedelic effect fitting with this idea that some people have called the default mode network functioning as that, that synchronization in the, that defines the default mode network is the ego and a whole lot of neuroscientists would argue against that characterization. Um, yeah. Why don't you actually explain the default before we continue uh, just a little bit about what the default mode? I would explain it on the show, but anybody new that's listening. Yeah, so it's a, a a a region of of brain areas that are defined not by their um, geographical, um, you know, so not that they're lumped together geographically. They're defined, and this is the way resting state imaging works. That's what this is all based on. This level of analysis. Um, it, it, it's d defined by, by their synchronization with each other. So basically, um, you see this synchronization when, um, more of this, uh, uh, synchronization when people aren't engaged in tasks, when they're not sort of, um, goal directed. So, you know, when this, when this was discovered, it was around the. It, it was when people shifted from task-based fMRI um, to this idea of resting state. The idea is like, let's just have this person lay down, and we're <laughs> going to scan their brain, and we're going to, you know, they might be daydreaming. Like, who knows? Um, we're not going to tell them to do anything, and we're going to look at the relationship between uh, activity of, of of different areas. And and this is one of the things that popped out. Like, and and. And that you get this this synchronization amongst these areas defined as the default mode network. And then when you have someone, okay, now I want you to, you know, do something. Add up these numbers, or like, you know, move the the cursor to this area. You know, give them any you know, like task to do. And you have sort of this, you know, different um, network activity that pops up, and that and that synchronization amongst the the default mode network disappears. So. Um, one of the so other findings and that's why it's called the default mode basically because if you're not doing anything else like what's the default synchronization look like it looks like this so that's like you know default kind of means daydreaming or not doing and we don't really know that it's daydreaming but it's like it falls in the category of like 
not not doing something, not having some explicit goal. Um, and daydreaming is one of the things that can go along with that. And so, um, and other findings uh, have been that self-referential processing. So things like think about a time in your life where, you know, so these autobiographical memories, something that you did that you can remember, or think about yourself a week from now, sort of projecting yourself into the future that, um, that the, the, the activity and the, that that synchronization of the default mode um, network, you know, increased. And, and so this idea from that self-referential processing, there's been this idea by some that, okay, this may be sort of the, the, the center of the self or the, or the ego, if you will, like that activity constitutes this having a sense of an integrated sense of self, which, which again is not, you know, universally, you know, agreed upon amongst <laughs> folks that really focus on this stuff. So the idea right. that, okay, well, psilocybin decreases that activity. Aha, people have been saying for like 80 years that getting people loaded on psychedelics causes ego death or ego loss. And certainly, you know, and I've and others have documented this plenty of times, any number of scales that get at this, having a sense of unity as part of the so-called mystical experience is just one way of looking at that related to a sense of oceanic boundless, boundlessness, which is very related, probably the same thing that's gotten through other uh, another um, framework of scales um, or just having people rate their degree of ego loss. It, it, it you know, it, 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 it appears that um, also there's a, there's a relationship between you know um, those those measures and the degree of, of of decoupling of the default mode network activity. So it led to this sort of idea like oh, that's the key. That's the you know this sort of losing the sense of self through the default mode network. It, that's the loss of ego, and that's mm -hmm. sort of the quintessential psychedelic effect. But it you know it it ignores the fact that there's these other drugs that do it too. And so one of the, the ways I play with of, of framing that is like, maybe it's just not like feeling like yourself. Maybe it's just right. being like, you know, effed up, you know, like whether you're like really drunk or just like on a, on a good dose of speed, you just feel really different, you know? Isn't and, that uh, the, like we think about ego as like who we are, but couldn't it just be that these psychoactive compounds, psychedelics, whatever's, you know, these different compounds, couldn't it just be disabling our normal pareidolia in the way that we look at the world, like the way we put things together? So by the, by understanding it like that, it's 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 tearing apart what we know pretty much as reality, and that makes us unnerved or puts us in a different realm of thinking or something like that? Yeah, and, and I think this is, you know, difficult, you know, sort of philosophically to necessarily, you know, fully disentangle from like what is an effect on sense of self versus what is an effect on your sense of the world. Um, and it kind of relates to another part of the, you know, kind of the, the, the cloudiness of the neurosciences in the sense that, you know, there are other, uh, there are effects on other networks and on, um, network activity in general mm -hmm. with this, with this idea of like basically a decrease in a lot of activity in sort of local networks, so networks that normally communicate a lot with each other, like the default mode network, they communicate less. But at, on the flip side, you get communication um, and, and uh, across uh, more distinct regions that don't communicate so much, their activity 
globally is more synchronized. And, and so you have effects on other things like uh, uh, salience network, which is you know somewhat related to what you were talking about, like this, you know, more about like what's sort of popping out at you in 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 the world. And mm-hmm. so the it's it's where I'm at with sort of evaluating the science, I think it's very clear that I think the level of brain network dynamics, the idea that there's big changes in the way that brain areas communicate with each other, I think that is a meaningful level of analysis for psychedelics. I don't think we, I think that's an important, a very important um, level of analysis for understanding the biology of, of psychedelic experiences. Um, but within that, I don't think we've, we're still in our infancy in figuring out, you know, you know, the details of that. hundred percent. Oh, I agree with that. Uh, and that's why I like, uh, the mystical, the phenomenal, uh, phenomenological aspects of it, consciousness, that kind of thing. I like it all. I want to know the science and I want to know the mystical stuff. Cause I don't, I mean, we discussed, I have OCD. I've talked about it a million times on the show. You can look at one of our episodes where we go through that but um i also wrote a blog on our website about it the thing about for me ocd was the thing that helped me was the mystical aspects of the experience now i had a history previous to having ocd so i had a relationship with psilocybin but the mystical aspects of it and i was kind of going through some sort of like spiritual awakening and just being interested in the science and reading these papers but also looking at like ancient texts and what did ancient people know what what you know is there any knowledge that can be retained or brought through to to current times and that whole thing um and i really found i really believe that it's the this belief in some higher thing it doesn't have to be like a creator or um, just that there's more out there or there's more to life than what meets the eye, I think is what it comes down to for me. And I think that that's probably what helps a lot of people. And if, in my opinion, I know that people will say different things and I'm sure there's different anecdotal evidence that suggests that maybe it's just the compounds in certain scenarios. But I do think that when you listen to these people that are like dying of cancer and they take psilocybin, it's like, oh, I can die peacefully now. Or, you know, I know that there's something more. Or, I feel like there's something else going on that I wasn't aware of before. Yeah, I think that, and that points to, you know, that there's there's this realm of like where the, you can measure mystical experience in a psychologically valid way, but ultimately it's pointing to something that is in the realm of, that's not empirical. So there's the, the kind of the truly mystical you know, realm, the philosophical realm, you know, maybe that's a better way to say it, you know, about like, there's, there's no proof of, you know, what the, oh, you people know, get crazy best- with it. I just want to, I'm not, you know, I, I look at, try and look at things without cognitive and comfort. It's hard, but without the biases, the thing is for me is I just wanted to point out that I do think there are people that go wild with it and it's just purely spec speculation. I like to take what I know or what's out there and kind of apply that. And then if I want to build off that in my own head or something like that or on the podcast we do that but i i do right. think that there is this medium where you can talk about mysticism you can talk about yeah, metaphysics yeah and, and still be grounded in reality too oh absolutely and, and i and i think it's it's um it's you know people should talk about philosophy and and their um 
you know, any thoughts about, you know, the, you know, metaphysics, you know, insight, you know, there's, you know, it comes with, you know, in terms of the science, we have a whole lot of caveats about, you know, about grounding whatever, you know, what is an intuition versus what can we actually show. And a lot of times it's overstated what, you know, what psychedelics has actually shown us, um, you know, at the scientific level, but not everything needs to be empirical. Like you can talk about things that are not empirical. You can say you love your spouse or your partner and <laughs> without right. the burden of showing that with, with, with the goddamn tea test, you know, it's like, we're allowed yeah. to do that. So, and, and I guess what I was saying with, in relationship to your description is it, I was saying it, 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 I think it beautifully described, um, something I wanted to say, there's a psychological or behavioral mental level that comes in between the, the truly mystical and the neuroscience. It's like science isn't just the, the neuroscience, the biology. And in fact, I think really the most meaningful level of science with psychedelics. I mean, they're all different levels of analysis and you can test different things, but the one we can get mo the most traction from is the psychological behavioral level. Mm. And, you know, kind of what you're describing is just this, um, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of just reflecting what you're saying, the, the, you know, this just kind of a, a, a psychological reframing, you know, sort of like, you know, not, not, um, you know, wanting to kind of pin down exactly what that is, but something that like life is more, there, there, there's more than whatever that is, than, than what you had, you know, it, had experienced or felt before. And some, how that's a, a the, cause this sort of psychological reframing where something like the OCD symptoms right. somehow were affected by that sort of much larger. I mean, like, my OCD is picture. bad. It's at bay now, but it's been really like worse than what I've seen on like people on TV. And I was resistant to, you know, the ser selective serotonin re-up uh, inhibitors, yeah. you know, the SSRIs and the different medications and the therapies. The most helpful thing has been macro dose psilocybin with CBT, I think is the most helpful in my opinion for you me. And find I, what's right for you. you and I've read, bo yeah. And I've read right. bo books on the subject. I've read all the scientific literature. I look at the the uh, OCD forums and it's just like, there's a lot of helplessness there. And I don't think, I think that it's great that psychedelics could be an option here in the future because I don't, what's going on right now is not working in my opinion. I'm not saying that some people aren't helped by it because I know that there are some, um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like we're still using this model of trying to treat these things from like 20, 30 years ago when we know there's new science, we know there's new techniques, we know right. there's new ways Time to look at these things. And I just, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. That's, that's why we talk about this on the show. We didn't start the podcast, you know, uh, three years ago wanting to talk about psychedelics. It was actually, I was kind of nervous the first couple of times we did. I'm like, you know, should I put this out there? But then I'm like, this helped me. I think it can help other people. And now science is really on board with it and really going through with it. So I think it's, um, I'm really interested and I appreciate obviously your research and you doing what you're doing because I think that's been a huge push forward for this whole subject. Um, I do want to yeah. shift here a little bit. Um, I want to talk about your paper, Consciousness, Religion, and Gurus, The Pitfalls of Psychedelic Medicine. Um, so I think some people, that might make some people mad that think of this in a purely uh, from a purely phenomenological point of view or purely mystical or purely spiritual. Uh, but when you read the paper, it's actually not doing that. It's, you know, you just kind of talk about how we should go into these things without any sort of set 
preconceived notions or putting ideals out there or putting, you know, stuff out there. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, that, that setup, Mike, because it, um, it really, it's, it's really easy to misunderstand, um, what, what the point is. And so, so one, one important caveat is that this is not telling people how, how they should interpret their, their experience. This is saying what therapists, what, you know, psychedelic researchers, how they should frame things or more appropriately, how not to frame things hmm. for their clients. And, and so it's, it's about really putting the client at the center. And so this is, I view it as being truly in the spirit of going back to humanistic psychology with, um, Maslow and Rogers and the, the, the great humanistic psychologists and putting the client you know, whatever you want to call them, the patient, the person, you know, receiving the, 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 the intervention, the treatment at the center and letting them make their own meeting, meaning you're only part of that fertile soil. And there's just this, it's pervasive that there's this sort of framing of, of what the, what the psychedelic experience is supposed to do. And it's more subtle than you know, at the extreme, you could say, okay, someone's going to incorporate it into some very explicit, you know, sort of cult-like religion. I mean, that's not what we're seeing in research studies. We're seeing more of like a a a an implicit one aspect is an implicit an implicit endorsement of perennialism, which mm. for for those who don't aren't, aren't familiar, it's it's this idea in the in in the the study of religions that 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 all religions point to a core truth that they're you know different manifestations of the same thing and there and so this has been both a a, a an academic you know sort of hypothesis that there you know there is a you know some core human experience that's a hard at the heart of different religions and it's it's also sort of a a a, a tenet of faith you know that mm -hmm. and and I think whether people realize that there's a term called perennialism and any academic debate around it like we all you know most people in the western world and probably elsewhere you know get it you know this whole we all have heard the stories or the anecdotes it's like oh the different religions are like blind people you know feeling out different parts of the elephant and describing god in different ways and they're all pointing you know it's really one elephant and that's just you know one story i've read you know and for many, you know, that falls in this category. And I'm not at all critiquing that. I mean, to me, that sort of falls in this sort of purely, um, you know, opinion, you know, philosophically related metaphysical opinion, you know, realm where we all can have our own opinions about it. But, you know, we don't, you can't tell someone that we know this scientifically to be true. And so the very concrete manifestations of this is loading up um, session room with multiple um, with, with a with the Buddha, with the Hindu God, with Tibetan prayer flags, with the crucifix. And so this has been kind of, some places only have included um, the the Buddha. The, the the Hopkins group ha, has traditionally used all of the the whole list of you know what I just mentioned, and this idea of like you know in, embedding this treatment in all of these religious symbols um 
you know, and I kind of asked, like, what's going on here? Why are, you know, why do that? Um, and then there's a certain way of talking with participants about when they come out of these experiences where you can sort of know, you can tell them, you know, it's like you can tell them, oh, this experience is going to teach you about the very nature of mind. Mm. And it's like, do we, do we know that? Like, I think that's a really good hypothesis, and that might be the case, but I can't with a straight face tell people. It could be it could be that the psychedelics cause the mind to do very, very different things. And, and you know, and that that different mode of operation is extremely useful to the person, and that they can come out of that and 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 keep some useful lessons. Do we know that it's necessarily telling us about the very nature of mind itself outside of psychedelics? I Again, maybe you know, and 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 perhaps that's the case. But we can't, you know. Can we really say that? Like, do we start to slip into the role of a priest or guru, or when someone comes out of the, you know, these experiences, and you tell them that, like, oh, there's something very precious at the core of these experiences that that we're all one. It's like, are you, are you? just reflectively listening from that person about what they're taking from that experience or are you telling them? And a lot of times it's telling them. Right. And it's like, are you... And so I know in, like, for example, my smoking cessation line of research where we've had um, a whole lot of, I mean, uh, oh, gosh, at, at this point, um, I mean, well over 100, probably over 150 sessions, I might have the math, certainly at least that much, you, you know where I've I've explicitly avoided that type of, of thing and don't have um what was sort of a a while into it before I was able to you know because we share space that for you know before I could you know um took the guru out of the out, out of the session. But at least I could tell you a whole lot of people after that point. And you know this it nothing works for everyone, but this really works great. Like you don't have to kind of lay on this sort of priest-like guru-like level of of um you don't have to treat it like a spiritual retreat and that like you're some sort of like you know you're the wizard that knows the answers to these things you can mm. and, and so the point of this sort of like one of the misunderstood points of of of, of the paper and i think probably the people that have read it don't misunderstand it because i think i right. lay it out pretty pretty well but you know you know, put it on Twitter and people will say, oh, how dare you say, like, this can't be considered spiritual. It's like, no, 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 don't say that at all. Right. In fact, you know, the point is let the let the client make their determination, and, and both in terms of how they want to frame going into the experience and the outcome. So if the person is a Buddhist or they're just – they think the Buddha is cool, like, by all means. I mean, we have these general instructions, bring meaningful objects, which I think is great, a great part of the sudden setting – you know, hey, bring a Buddha, you know, bring, you know, bring a, a, you know, statue of Christ, whatever, you know, bring the flying spaghetti monster, if that's part of your, well, important to your framework. I was gonna say, historically, like, if you look at, you know, um, like Mesoamerican, you know, metaphysics and the, the psilocybin culture that they had and everything, um, it seems like the, you know, because of, you know the Colum- you know the Colombian Columbus and everything that they adopted Christian views. So now, if you look at like these ceremonies, Christ, Saint Peter, you know San Pedro, like all these things are kind of incorporated. It's almost like they were they were forced upon those people, but those 
people still found a way to incorporate those to be helpful to themselves and kind of like mix it mm-hmm. with their own ceremonies and their the you know the precursor to that yeah and so psychedelics can again nothing works for everyone but you know i think we're all interested because psychedelics when when done right for the right people can work at a very high rates they seem to go along with they can go along with a lot and work so you give it to a a, a, a traditional bible believing christian and you can have a good number of Jesus experiences that are very meaningful to people. So my, my colleague Peter Hendricks at University of Alabama, Birmingham, is finding a lot of experiences like this just through dis- discussion with him about it because he's dealing with the largely, you know, African-American, like lower SES, um, you know, uh, population in the Bible Belt, in the Deep South, you know. And so you're going to have a bunch of Protestant Christians. And, and so – you're going to get experiences like that, you know. Not everyone, but a good number of the folks that have participated in our studies, more so in the early days, are kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, you'd call kind of new agey. Right. And it can it can go along with that. And I can tell you, I've had a number of just straight up atheists, um, materialists, whatever you want to, you know, call it, or strong agnostics um, that. That's pretty much how they come out too, you know. And this can be very meaningful to those people as well. Um, I was very impressed by a book that uh, philosopher Chris uh, Letheby has. Um, he hasn't published it yet, but he shared a he shared it with me before its publication, where he he makes this point very strongly that it, it can go along with all of those frameworks, um, but it doesn't depend on it. Doesn't depend. It can go along with supernatural beliefs or religion. Uh, but it can work without them, and it's more about changes in self-representation. Um, and I would agree with that as a as a working hypothesis because I've just seen it 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 work in yeah like it can go along with any belief system, you know, which should give us pause because we we know it were, it went along with Charles Manson's belief system with his call about the coming race war and this like har I mean you know this evil philosophy that he indoctrinated his his followers with that inspired them to kill people um so yeah you know we should be mindful it can go along with a lot and so way less that you know that's probably the most extreme example you could think of as manson right um or in the category of the most extreme but then you have more of these just subtle harms like are you are you introducing you know philosophies that you know or it's not even philosophies, it's metaphysical belief systems that and sort of framing them as as you know from a from a you know clinical psychological or psychiatric perspective as as validated, you know, right. by you know Johns Hopkins science. Um, and then and so there's sort of so-called epistemological harm. And then another you know danger is the fact that um, gosh, we I want this stuff mainstreamed. I don't want a Muslim out there to to who's suffering from OCD or from, you know, you name it, depression, who might be affected by this to, to, to think, oh man, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to show up someone with a Buddha. That's, I don't believe in that. That's right. not my, my belief. So, or an or a Richard Dawkins style atheist. I mean, most atheists don't care whether, whatever, <laughs> who cares Buddha, it's just a statue. Yeah, but some, I, you know, I don't know Richard Dawkins, but I ima- could imagine someone. We've been highly know, critical his... of his work on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And whether you, 
agree. I mean, I think he's you know you know too harsh on people in in, in many ways. But and he's opposed in, in to psychedelics spirit. himself. I mean, he I think he was on Rogan, and Rogan asked him, "Would you try this or something?" And he said his like uncle was associated with like early mescaline studies or something like that, or a family friend. And uh, he's like, "My brain's too precious." So if that's not interesting, the ego. Well, I don't I wonder, know. And I get that, I, I guess, but. I wonder if a part of it, totally speculating, is that the the idea that psychedelics have been embedded in this kind of larger religious and supernatural spiritual framework. And when I say super spiritual, that can mean just like finding well, meaning in life, loving those. I who, think that's who you're what he said too. He goes, even if I had it and had a s- metaphysical experience, I would still chalk it up to brain function. You know, so like, what kind of science is that? Where, um. You know, I don't like that. I don't like when people are so dogmatic because he's going to look like an idiot 100 years from now. We all are. So, I mean, what is or 200 years or whatever? Like there might be pieces of what we're saying now that'll be used in the future or things that'll be studied or be a, like, a, you know, looked at through a different lens. But, uh, you know, you look at like Thomas Kuhn and the, you know, structure of, you know, scientific, re- you know, revolutions and paradigm shifts and stuff and. I think we're due for a paradigm shift. And I think the psychedelic stuff, the studies, our um, fascination with, you know, consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness and what's going on with AI. I mean, I think we're on the precipice of figuring some things out. But even then, there's going to be a whole new set of questions and problems that arise from that, too. So it's this we're like Sisyphus ever pushing this boulder up, you know, the mountain. And I don't know why science is so dogmatic. You go on Twitter and it's all. You know, they try and humanize themselves. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a lot of scientists, usually in humanities, that do this thing. It's like, hi, my name's John. I have a dog and, you know, I love, you know, gardening and this and that. And they do this. And then, and then like another one will chime in and like tell their version of the same thing. And it's this like way to like humanize themselves to pub- public. But then they go off on these tangents where they like, I've seen tons of scientists, like people ask genuinely ask questions or they might have a fringe theory and they get like negative responses or they'll get talked down to, or that, you know, they're arguing from positions of authority, you know? So it's like, I think some of these people need to have two different accounts, like a science account and then like their personal account. Cause I don't think, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think that's a huge problem right now. That's why there's a lot of people that don't trust science. It's because of that like dogmatic nature of it, that hard materialist, you don't know what you're talking about. I do. I spent five to 10 extra years in school. I'm just a normal person, but somehow I'm enlightened to the point to teach you. That's the vibe that's on social media from scientists. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, um, oh, I've got strong opinions. That's about why you're that. on here because um, you're so cool and I don't think of you right. that way. So. Well, and I hope my opinions aren't too strong because then I'll fall into the exact category you're talking about. <laughs> no, I mean, look, you're going by but, data and you're, you're, everybody's, we're all... You know, I think MC Hammer tweeted at somebody yesterday. I don't know if you saw I it. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. beautiful. Yeah. It was actually a beautiful. Yeah, it's too legit, bro. Yeah. yeah uh, I was like, I, I checked the account. I was like, is this like the MC Hammer? It was like, <laughs> oh, like it, and it's like, okay, like so many million followers. Like, okay, that must be like MC Hammer. And he was like talking about like the appropriate integration of philosophy and science and people that are arguing between. It's like, holy cow. Right. I mean, that's something that most. <laughs> No like more a lot of scientists <laughs> I know like don't get it like and that's a very very important point yeah and, and in fact I think the psychedelics like they they really they put us at that place where you really have to you're gonna do bad science unless you have some appreciation for philosophy and um 
And a lot of empiricists don't like to admit it, but there are certain, you know, the search for truth, which is broader than empirical science, you know, you know, broader than em- empiricism is is uh, involves philosophy. It involves you know, logic as a part of philosophy. Like one plus one equals two. You know, you can show that empirically. You don't need to show that empirically. You can show that logically. And right. So that's you know, just as a as a trivial example, like that's that's philosophy. I was going to say back to the you know, the Richard Dawkins. I wouldn't want to. Maybe he would never do it. But if it was only the Buddha keeping him away, <laughs> I wouldn't want that to be what kept him away from the. Because who knows? We could blow his pants off like if he came in, <laughs> you know, to you know yeah. address some mood disorder or whatever. And you know, if it wasn't the Buddha that scared him away, but he, he ends up. He's like, talking, I am the selfish gene. <laughs> <laughs> I've been the selfish gene all along. <laughs> and I think that what you're talking about is um. In some, from scientists, like really gets to an elitism that I think is, frankly, it's 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 at the center of the planet, you know, in terms of what's going on, mm-hmm. in terms of politics, it's in in terms of, um, the 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 the, the mistrust, that the changes in journalism, the 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 corrosion of of of, of public trust in all of the institutions that, you know. Um, at least it used to have more trust and maybe they never did fully deserved the trust that they had, but there's something to be that there's a necessity of having a, a, a sufficient level of trust and that trust has to be earned. But, you know, this sort of like the ivory tower, um, is really, you know, which refers to, you know, the elitism and academics and, and sort of being off in your own world. It's, it's really dangerous. And, uh, and, I don't know that this this idea that people are are sort of um, beneath you and need to be talked down to. No, taught. They don't and, know what they're talking about. They have no idea. You know, it's that vibe. And I, what it comes down to is this, in my opinion, I think that there's not a lot of good science communicators. I think that that's obviously when you go down the route of science, you're not engaging, you're not like in sales or marketing where you're engaging with a lot of people and you understand how people interact. There's a lot of people that have lost that element of life. And the ones that don't, it seems like there's this other thing happening where, um, again, they're talking from positions of authority on things that aren't necessarily 100% empirical. And when it comes from the humanities, it's even less empirical. So I don't know where they get off, but it just seems... You see a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems... Humanities. Yeah, it just seems... And look, when I see people talking about like OCD or whatever, and they're like a psychologist, um, and they, they don't have it, it's this thing where it's like, okay, I get it. You're trying to help people. You don't understand what's going on in my head. I'm trying to explain it to you or I'm trying to give you, you know, as much data as possible. But at the end of the day, there is this big disconnect. And um, back to the MC Hammer thing, you know, we're all we're all bound to consciousness. We don't know what it is and yet we use it to measure everything. So if we're using it to measure everything, how can we be so sure of anything when we don't even know what the primary source of this observation is? Beautiful right. said. Um, but yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm just fired up about it cause I love science and I love like what you're doing and I love this like visionary cutting edge stuff. And I think that what the other people want is a slow crawl, 
teach people the breadcrumbs and you know throw them the scraps. Yeah, we like to push the envelope. Yeah, and I like and it happens. Sorry, go it ahead. happens within science. Like, and it, it it makes science go at a snail's pace. Like, the the superficial reward for sort of uh, uh, empty skepticism is high. You know, so you see this particularly strong, in my opinion, within psychiatry. So I'm a psychologist in a psychiatry department, and I, you know, it's there for academics. I think psychiatrists probably because they have been kind of shit on within the larger field of medicine hmm. is sort of being not real doctors and there's this tendency for them to then because they are mds to, to shit on psychologists who aren't mds you know as being even further out on that ledge um of of this sort of like you know the sort of the white and that's a very special the physician level of of, of the elite academic and medical elitism is a very kind of special special type and there's just like this very high I see it with psychedelics all the time this like this sort of level of 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 you feel like you're impressing your superiors and your colleagues if you just sort of express this skepticism even when it's like you don't have a good reason and you throw out sort of these reasons that just aren't very well i mean they're they're not very intellectual you know sometimes and they just sound right. like stupid you know and 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 in a way and they come off as like very aggressive in a way that they could come off as more as genuine questions that could that sometimes have an answer and the person but they come off in a way that is just meant to like show the rest of the group oh i'm not i'm not one of these fluffy just sort of touchy-feely types who's going to buy into any bullshit Right. You know, that that maybe some, you know, psychologist would or maybe some palm reader would, you know, like, right. you, you know, that. that. But see, you need that you need a balance. Like, yeah, you do need to, like, be empirically minded. You need to be logical. You need to you need to have humility and balance that with this, you know, the understanding that, like, there's far more that we don't know than we do know. And his science is, is filled with a history of things becoming possible that were previously predicted as being impossible yeah, and that yeah and and most periods of time people basically thought they figured out 99% of the world and they're working on the last 1% and in reality even up until now like we're not even like you know 0.00001% you know into figuring out what's really going on so there's a, a you know but but you do need that skepticism but i feel like it's it's wielded in such a way that and, and this is this interacts with like the, the the horrible nature of committees which decide what science gets funded like you have one person around the table that is you know strongly skeptical and then everyone else you know tends to fall in line because mm -hmm. you don't want to be seen as the gullible person and you want to be seen as the, and the way that grants are reviewed and it's like you, you're you're charged with scoring weaknesses and in bullet points and you don't want to be seen as that person that didn't catch mistakes. And yeah, but nobody remembers those people. Everybody remembers the risk takers. Right. They end up winning the Nobel prize, which we know is less likely to come from NIH funded research that went through those committees. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I recently got a, a, a well, eventually got a perfect score on uh, a, a, an NIH grant to study psychedelics. And, and it was a nearly perfect score and, and it ultimately wasn't funded. And, you know, it's like you, I mean, who knows what's what goes on behind the scenes, but, um, you know, fully, but, 
you know, you suspect there's this type of uh, these factors that are that are going on. You know, like why aren't you know that 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 something is some trick is being pulled that you know there there's some the science really isn't what it's appearing to be. Right, that, there is some weird manipulation going on behind the, the screens. You know, right. Or it, it, yeah, it it only works in a certain type of person, and there can be a core to each one of those questions that are addressable. You know, um, like, you know, like yeah, we do. Like one of my points to seeking that funding is like, we haven't traditionally had a whole lot of money, and like, in fact, enough to like compensate people for their time, and so we're gonna get, you know, more people on the on the poorer end of the scale, and and, and also more um, minorities. If we're actually able to compensate people, it's like, yeah, because you got to take time off of work and pay people to watch your kids. And if you're working an hourly yeah. job, like, you know, you, you, you're you not going to get paid that day. And, like, you know, so like, you right. know, cause so, so part of the point is like, yeah, 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 we do need to address that in the field is making sure even though there's, you know, I, I think it can be overstated. We've had plenty of people on the lower end of the, you know, um, economic scale in, in, in our studies as well. But it does, you know. Um, you know, Do you think the a- U- U.S. though is in a unique position because if you look at like all around the world and indigenous cultures and there's either been or is um, psychedelic traditions in place in other parts of the world and we all the U.S. is different because we're kind of like an amalgamation of everybody right so um do you think that we're in a unique position in terms of we don't have like an identity you know we don't have you know, the sacred mushroom rituals of Mesoamerica. We don't have the uh, Iboga tradition of West Africa. We don't have the, you know, Lucinian mysteries from ancient Greece. You know, like these are all things that have been employed throughout time, throughout the world. And we're kind of like in this new wave where it's almost like maybe science is kind of filling that void right now. Or like, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, and, and thinking about the U.S., I would certainly say, well, Europe is very, you know, very similar to the U.S. in these respects and doesn't have a um, traditional – unless we go, you know, way out into Eurasia in terms of Amanita use among Siberian shaman, which has been debated about, you know, like, basically how important that really was for even them. But, you know, largely without a, a sort of, a, you know, indigenous use of – at least identifiable or one that survived indigenous use of, of psychoactive substances. I mean, I think it, I'm not sure it, it might have to do more with, um, you know, be, people being rooted in, uh, in belief systems sort of regardless of whether it's, 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 you know, those are rooted in psychedelics. Right. I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, society is like, I mean, in the big picture, I think, you know, we've been, I mean, ever since the Enlightenment, we've been going through this weird time of like, you know, kind of this shift towards, you know, naturalism and, and, and empiricism and, and, and logic. And, and, you know, how does that square with traditional, you know, beliefs, be it Christianity or any other, you know, belief system? And, and sort of shifting in, in, into this kind of mode as humans of in this realm of like where we need to where we're trying to find our own meaning rather than recognizing that the the meaning that was handed to us, you know, right. by the 
by the parents, you know, throughout the generations is necessarily real. I mean, I don't want to, you know, with this, I, one of the things I try to avoid is just sort of a glorification of indigenous cultures because they've had psychedelic, you know, sacramental use. I mean, you know, we need to be respectful of all cultures and we need to, I mean, gosh, what's happened to indigenous cultures has been, has been, you know, horrific. And, um, uh, you know, I think largely though, like we, that should be understood through like the lens of, um, I'm, I'm convinced by like Jared Diamond's guns, germs, and steel about, you know, these are essentially the factors of, of, of basically quirks of history that, you know, why, you know, why Europe ended up being the one that largely colonized the, the world um i think you can kind of get into i mean i think basically humans are humans well it, okay so philosophically though it's due to each other to, yeah. to your point i mean if we're not if we're saying everything's evolving now based on all this empirical data then you you could go back and say well the ancient people might have known some truths they didn't have it figured out either because if they did we would know about it or we would have some continuation of that while there's some healing obviously some of the indigenous you know like the ikaros there's like some certain things that help people that are just kind of probably miss you know they're not known or understood what the mechanism that is helping these people um you know in an ayahuasca ceremony or whatever at the same time we are ever evolving consciousness is ever evolving so while i i i, I like the indigenous stuff we've talked a lot about it on the show um, I like the metaphysics of it. I like um, the history and the cultures and everything. I do think that you're right. There are people that put it at like a forefront. And I think that we need to be respectful of everybody. And like you said, all the cultures, but at the same time, understand that this picture is ever evolving. So nobody's had it right yet. And we got to keep pushing this, this ball forward because, you know, that's this, that's what this is, right? Is we got to just keep pushing this for the future people and then those people for the future people for that, you know? So, um, that's the way I look at it philosophically. I love all that stuff, but when it comes down to, um, do I think that anybody had it completely figured out? No, I, I don't think anybody has yet. Right. I mean, you know, and you know, with the caveats of, you know, I think we should, you know, the protection of all like, you know, societies is, is, you know, extremely important and, and, and cultures and preserving languages and, and, and human rights, you know, it's also like this glorification of sort of like all indigenous cultures can be, you know, uh, it, it can be, it can lead you down some really warped thinking. I mean, homicide rates were absolutely through the roof. I mean, in, in indigenous cultures, including the modern ones that are, you know, by all evidence. I mean, there's a lot of hard and, and the, the use of psychedelics. I mean, um, there's plenty of examples of using these things to go headhunting, to get hot to, to um, um, there's one all fascinating um, video you can see on YouTube of a, a documentary, I think probably from the early 70s. It's sort of National Geographic style, but it's, it's not Nat Geo. But um but but of 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 a of a tribe and i think peru um that getting hopped up on some you know dmt containing or bufadenine containing snuff and just and they're they're acting out like the the sacrifice of the children um in the warring tribe and you know there's plenty of examples of like just right. horrible stuff you know and just this idea that like psychedelics automatically lead to this 
morality, you know, in that, you know, in that anything from a, from a, an indigenous culture involving the use of psychedelics as something to be blindly modeled is just you know the aztecs i, I look at it as like a more of like a human sacrifice yeah more of like a microscope or telescope is the way i look at it like you can either look inward or you know get real deep down in the minutia or you can look outward and ponder the universe it's like a tool is the way i look at it. i don't really look at it as this cure-all or silver bullet or anything and i know it can help a lot of people but yeah i mean I don't know. I, I think that, uh, again, I, I love studying all the ancient psychedelic stuff, and I think that it can be useful, and obviously they knew stuff. You know, that's how we know about some of these compounds. You know, like if you look at the indigenous mm-hmm. traditions and you look at, uh, we were even talking before, and you look at like the more modern, just the people using psychedelics during Prohibition and then the clandestine chemists keeping it alive. And, you know, it's like the indigenous people and then the Prohibition and then, mm-hmm. you know, the people just using it. It's kind of kept this thing alive for now science to kind of get in there. So that's why that's the, how I look at it is like a respect for the past and the people that have kept this thing alive, but we need to keep the ball rolling. You can't just stop and say, it's all figured out just like you can't do right, that with science. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I do want to talk about one of your other studies, which I found mm-hmm. interesting, which was the, uh, psilocybin and DXM, uh, mm-hmm. uh, experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, now when you do these, um, uh, experiments or tests or whatever, do you look at it from a, a point of view of, um, do you go in like open-minded to the point that like maybe DXM, even though what is DXM? Is that a phenethylamine? Um, no, actually it's a, it's a, it's a relative of ketamine and PCP. Okay. So at high doses, it's an NMDA antagonist. All right. So, yeah. So when you look at these things, do you go in with like preconceived notions based on previous data or you just try and look at it basically what the people say about their experience and then extract from that? So it's a bit of both, you know, so certainly that study was was set up to examine dextromethorphan or DXM as a psychedelic, you know, in terms of, you know, if it had you know, to, to examine those psychedelic, potential psychedelic type qualities. And I mean, I very early, so we did a a multiple studies uh, with dextromethorphan and before the first one, I was, you know, sort of a strong voice uh, in the early team saying like, Hey, don't underestimate this stuff. This is a, people call this a psychedelic for a reason. And I was met with sort of a, uh, Oh yeah, but isn't this more like you know people taking high doses of Benadryl and like you know you know it's like yeah I'm sure you know people get high and you know but it's not really like a psychedelic and, and oh it's uh, psychedelic and I've done very <laughs> high I've, I've done very high doses of both and I think it is psychedelic I guess depending so on. that's that's what I was saying and you know that like yeah like this is psychedelic people call it a psychedelic for a reason. And there was there's one early participant. It wasn't merely being treated like a psychedelic in terms of, uh, and I wasn't the one that was primarily leading that that study. Um, so uh, one of the participants er, early on, who wasn't prepared like the way we would pa- prepare a psilocybin participant, they had sort of more of a minimal type of preparation, the type you would give for if you were doing a study with methamphetamine or a benzodiazepine or you know you want to 
have a good rapport with people. You certainly do informed consent, but there's not this sort of level of like, you're going to spend hours talking with these people who are going to guide you through the experience to get to trust them because you might be, you know, thinking you're dying and you're going to have to, they're going to have to hold your hand and, and let you know that everything's okay. You know, like that's what you need to do when you right. prepare someone for a, 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 you know, a real psychedelic experience like with psilocybin. So yes, yeah, someone got, someone got paranoid and I mean, they, they in, Everyone ended up being fine, but like they got real paranoid with one of the research assistants that was with them. He had to leave. Someone else that wasn't known to them had to come in. And it was like, I mean, it was kind of an I told you so, you know, moment. <laughs> like, right. yeah, we, you know, we need to treat this like we're treating psilocybin. And so, so yeah, there's this combination. Eventually, as a team, we ended up landing at, at that place of like, you know, you have to have some, you know, to do things safely, you have to have some preconceived notions, you know, like, yeah, like in terms of even being interested in what to study, like, you know, like we're not even, if we didn't suspect it was a psychedelic, we wouldn't be giving, you know, certain types of scales, you know, um, right. so you, you would study something if you expect in a certain way, if you expect it to be more like an amphetamine or more like a, a, a downer, like a benzodiazepine. So, um, and then, you know, some subjective drug scales are, are sort of kind of all arounders. I mean, they can, they can capture all of these, but you, these different as different drug classes, but you really, you also want to have measures that kind of hone in to the, to, to the, to, to, to the probable type of, um, experiences people are going to have. So it was a bit of both, but found, I mean, the, the take home was that I was struck more by the similarities. And so just there's some differences around the edges, but it was remarkably similar. When you get up to doses of like 400 you know, milligrams of dextromethorphan, you're you're talking about very psilocybin-like experiences. Yeah, I don't know. I okay. So in college, I lived next door to these guys, and they're like, "Hey, we've you know got this you know stuff," and it was like they were using like coffee filters or something. It was like this like powder somehow they extracted the whatever. Anyways. I was I was dumb when I was younger and I just did things. This was pre, you know, everything that's going on where things are spiked and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. um but yeah, so me and my cousin took this and I I I don't know how many milligrams. It was a lot. I think maybe 1200. It was on Irwid, there was like it was like half of what they like the highest anybody mm. Had ever done or something like that, and <laughs> and uh, it was very robot. It, it was it was very robotic. It lasted like ten hours. I was like in certain aspects, I was like completely floored, like laid out, like couldn't move. Um, and then we would get up and go walk around, and it, things would look like hyperspace. Um, mm -hmm. Very robotic. I just remember very very robotic and uh my stomach was all messed up similar to like lsd like i was sitting on the toilet for a while um and uh yeah it was just it wasn't pleasant like i would i've never done tropane tropa 10 times after that <laughs> I've, I've never done a, a tropane <laughs> but i would assume it's similar in that fact where people come out and say yeah it was an experience but it wasn't like pleasant you know what i'm saying like it was that kind of oh a, yeah Feeling. They never had to like make Jimson weed illegal for a reason, right? You know, like, like most people, it's a one and done type thing. You know, similar uh, with amanita mushrooms. But yeah, to your back to your study though, I think what was the the end all was that I've, most people said that they would try psilocybin again, but only a few people said that they would try DXM again. Yeah, so it's it's 
yeah, I think that there's this and, uh, around the edges. I think you know psilocybin was more more deeply valued long term, um, and there are some other differences. So that like yeah, so um, uh, I believe we found that in our study more GI distress with dextromethorphan, um, despite having a totally you know totally clean you know um, you know supply uh, you know. Of the substance, yeah. Who knows what and, was, uh... right, right. If it, but so I'm here to tell you, a part of that, that's just dextromethorphan, you know. Especially right. if you're taking that kind of dose, like you're gonna, it's yeah. What about like y- tons of? I mean, I yawn from psilocybin, but there's like a lot of yawning and like tiredness and this like almost like lethargy associated. Maybe it was because of the high dose, but it wasn't like, I don't know. Maybe it was just my biochemistry too compared to other people but i thought it was like very laid back you know it was like almost like be like melting into the couch or the chair or whatever so i think that you know and that's if I, if i'm understanding right i think you're describing some of the more dissociative aspects of it so this okay. is sort of the commonalities with ketamine and with with pcp um where you know maybe you, you weren't in a full k hole or a d hole but you were at least at the edges of that sort of like swirling into the black hole of the dextromethorphan hole you know like in it's it's kind of why like with with ketamine if people do a really high dose i mean they're if they're laying down like they're just if, if they have a bad trip at least it's in their head because they're typically not doing something like they're just unlike a classic psychedelic where one is can be more behaviorally active. The inclination is just to kind of withdraw right. and kind of go inward and be dissociate. That's the dissociation um, from the external environment. So what you're probably descri- you're describing is probably that um, aspect of it. And there can also be some some numbing, you know, just which is part of that distance from external in, in environment. Some the anesthetic like property. So. Yeah, know. it was a bad. It was just all we were. We made the mistake we were putting on stupid movies too. It was like, uh, what's the, what's the that wall. one? No, no, no. What's the one, Maurice? The um, oh, uh, Requiem, Requiem for, for a, a dream. dream. That was a mistake watching that. On, on I mean, that's a mistake. Almost watching it sober. <laughs> it is a nice piece of film, but my lord. Um, but yeah, so I think that the set and setting, even though I could choose whatever we chose to, you know, so there was some psychological things going on there, um, but. Yeah, there was some like very psychedelic aspects to it, but again, it's not something that I would probably choose to do, you know, like I don't know. But I feel that way about other compounds. I feel that way about LSD. I did it a bunch when I was younger and I'm not interested in it anymore. I'm very very still interested and fascinated by psilocybin. Always have been. Yeah. So it's it's, it's hard to say, you know, the, the degree to which some of that just individual differences um and and societally it's hard to say because you know like it or not there's this cultural connotation of 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 dextromethorphan being for like you know teenagers that can't get a hold of real drugs (laughs) so even though it's widely available like one doesn't have to you know just you know isolate it from anything i mean there's you know multiple brands out there there's like there's one active ingredient it's dextromethorphan i'm not recommending people do this or anything to be clear but it's not hard to like anyone could get a hold of dextromethorphan in the United States. Um, yeah, lots of kids um, were barfing in uh, high school when we were in high school, trying to like what is a robot like whatever it was. Um, right. And yeah, that's robo trip. That, that's gross. 
Yeah, so people, you know, they'll, you know, drink a, you know, sort of the small bottle of it will have about 354, I think it's is the number of milligrams. I mean, that's a that's a solid psychedelic dose. People really, again, not recommending anyone do anything, but uh, you know, people, you know, that do this are 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 wise. Like it's critical that they avoid anything that has the other in- active ingredients. So, because there, there's these Robitussin and other brands that have these other, you know, all the variations, some of which contain a decongestant and contain acetaminophen. Any number of these things can kill someone when you get the dose high, right. high enough or cause horrific, you know, yeah, we always go by Irwid for dosage and threshold. Like Irwid was our Bible back in the day. Yeah. The, so it's, it's hard to say how much of the, the, the coloring of experiences is by, you know, um, the idea that this is sort of a, a, of a, a kid's drug in a way, you know, sort of like it's what you do when you can't score acid you know, right. or mushrooms, you know, um, and in part that's where the value of a double blind study comes in, you know, where, you know, get, you know, there, we, so we did see shades of, of that, but you know, you can argue over whether it's more, I, I was again, more struck by the similarity than the differences, but, um, yeah, yeah, it may be the, that those differences are the one are, are ones that help, you know, that or that contribute to it not being used so much, you know, even though people can, you know, anyone can get it. Yeah, so um, so to the different alkaloids, you have tryptamines, phenethylamines, tropanes. It seems like tryptamines um, are like the most traditional, conventional, and seem to not have um, an effect physiologically other than maybe you know, on your psyche, your mind. Um, do you, do you look at it that way? Like, cause I know tropanes like Datura can have, you know, uh, effects on your heart, stuff like that. And I know phenethylamines have some weird things too. So like is tryptamines is, is, are those alkaloids, are, are we set up better for that? Or like, what do you think's going on there? I, I think that's frankly too crude of a, of a, of a characterization to okay. be useful because there are, I mean, there are tryptamines that are not going to have that, you know, the, the kind of the freakish physiological safety as LSD and and um, and psilocybin. And you could consider, you know, um, uh, yeah, at least LSD and sort of a subclass of, of, of tryptamines in a more complex structure. But, but yeah, um, the, you know, and so you, ha- you can have something like mescaline, that's a, a phenethylamine, that's pretty remarkably physiologically safe right. you know so now it's it's something like you know um instead of being having no known physiological um lethal overdose for, for the large majority of people without any any um severe susceptibility so for example people have died from taking too much mushrooms if they have heart disease severe heart disease something like that but for most people there's no known physiological overdose so that's yeah, right one of the safest right like isn't psilocybin like the safest on that chart as terms of on effects on your body? Right, right. There's there really is no known physiological overdose. Um, so it's it, in a sense it's like cannabis and LSD. All of them you could say that that for mescaline it takes something like two hundred times or something like this. So it's like it's but hey, pretty like. That's way better than caffeine. That's way better than alcohol. You right. know, way better than you know Tylenol. I think most of these, these substances, you know, you can't just take five times the amount, <laughs> of the, you know, that takes to 
get you a good solid, you know, being drunk and then take five times the amount and expect to live. Caffeine's you know, one hell of a drug. Right? Yeah, and so the, so, you know, mescaline is, it, it basically is pretty darn physiologically safe. To, then again, you have MDMA as an phenethylamine, you know, and, and that's also an example of why structure isn't the best way to think about things because MD, even though it's based on the phenethylamine structure, you've now shifted to uh, a compound that's a primarily a serotonin releaser hmm. rather than something that's an agonist at the 2A receptor. So chemistry is more disconnected you know, from function than is receptor pharmacology. So it's more about that, – that gets closer. Receptor pharmacology gets closer to what the effects are. So, you know, yeah, and, and, and you can have – the same basic structure and tweak it, tweak it one of several ways and, you know, could potentially make it horribly, you know, um, you know, toxic and have a close relative chemically that's very similar. That's, that's not so much. So, but there is, so I wouldn't use that kind of correlation at any individual level to make any assumption about any compounds, but stepping back, it is true that grossly speaking that the tryptamines tend to be more physiologically safe or I should say less risky compared to yeah. certainly um, some of the other drug classes that are out there, like a lot of drug classes that are out there. But there's always exceptions and it's more about how it affects the receptors. No, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I just, because uh, uh, the way I look at it is um, – the traditional ones, like you said, have like less of effect on the body. I there's like no like hangover kind of, and like when you do like, I've done high doses of MDMA, and then there's like a serious you know hangover action going on, and you have to make sure you're drinking tons of water and you're not doing anything uh, that's strenuous, that kind of a thing. But I did want to ask you about um, MDMA being psychedelic because. <laughs> I've talked about this on the podcast, but I had to leave a fish show because the visuals, I think I took like 0.2 or something and the visuals, uh, were very, very intense. All right. Sorry, folks. We are live again. That cut out for a second, but, uh, I was just mentioning, I um, I was asking about MDMA being psychedelic in the terms of uh, visuals and stuff like that, because I had to leave a fish show early because my visuals were too intense and I was having like an emotional experience with along with it. And, uh, I think I took, it was like 0.2 and, uh, I know it was pure. So I mean, we were good on that front, but I had very intense visuals that I've never had before. I mean, I've had some visuals on like mixing MDMA with psilocybin and things like that, but I've never had that response. Um, so what's going on there? Because there's a lot of people that say MDMA is not psychedelic in that sense. And then there's other people who are like, yeah, it is. So, I mean, what do you think is going on? Is it just biochemistry or? Uh, I, biochemistry is, is part of it, but also I, I, I think it's, you know, it's outside the organism too. It's like, what, what's going on? Like what, what, what was in your head that day? What circumstance, what music were you, you know, listening to? Mm. What environment were you in? I mean, I think about going even further, I think this can help ground it, going even further than that. We know plenty of people have full-blown mystical experiences without taking any substance. Right. You know, so they can have like the equivalent of a very strong LSD or psilocybin experience, you know, feeling absolutely one with the universe. I mean, this is, you know, William James and others were fascinated by the mystical experience, you know, not primarily driven by drug use, although he was interested in that too, but by just these accounts of, 
these experiences that sometimes just pop up from from nowhere mm -hmm. um, seemingly or or that you can get through like days of fasting and, and other methods. So all that said, if this can pop out of nowhere, then, hey, you're, you're probably getting closer to the, to the terrain by by having a, a good dose of MDMA and, and being at a, at a at a fish show, if that's the, <laughs> the right you know place for you, you know, to. You know, whatever, uh, I've you know, never had any issues, but I, I wanted to be not in a crowd at that point. I wanted to be like chill, right. closing my eyes. And at, that was the first time I've ever felt like that because I've done stuff at enough jam band shows and, you know, concerts and stuff where I've always been comfortable in that set and setting. But that was the first time it kind of made me reassess that. And now I only like doing it in darkness or alone or stuff like that. So it kind of made me reassess the way I look at using psychedelics in a way. Yeah, and these experiences are just highly. I mean, they're they're individual, and, and we just have they're they're probabilistic, you know. And and some people on a placebo in our studies will have a psilocybin-like experience. Um, so you know, the idea that you can have a more kind of truly psychedelic-like experience sometimes on MDMA is not at all surprising and, and it doesn't mean that it's all in your head i mean the experience is real i mean to the degree that any experience is 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 real um and and but who knows like it could be all, part of it could be the something biochemistry it could have been a like you know well i was seeing closed eye that day did something to your, yeah, you know? i was seeing closed eye jellyfish floating around when i was laying in bed for <laughs> i'm not joking like three hours after i got home and I, it was like I even told my wife, I'm like, I don't, I had to like smoke a ton of cannabis and hit vape pens. Like I was trying anything I could. And it wasn't like it was not pleasurable. It's just like, well, when is this going to end? And these when jelly, do I start worrying about these, my brain. Yeah. Like, and these jellyfish, yeah. I just kept thinking like, this is weird. Is Are these alien? Like, like I just kept thinking like there was something metaphysically going on that I, I had previous had not experienced on that compound. Wow. But yeah, that's a. Uh... A compelling account. I don't deny it, uh, doubt it at all. Um, I definitely took too much, though. I will point that. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I felt like it's usually a part it, of the yeah. formula. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had probably wouldn't happen on like you know forty milligrams of MDMA. Um, I don't right. know if you happen to know what you were, you know, or or for most people at a yeah, at it was 0.2 grams. So what is that? Uh, so tw 200 milligrams. Yeah. Is that a which lot? Which is a big dose of MDMA. Yeah. People talk about a sort of a standard dose being 125 milligrams of okay. MDMA. Although doses on, the, on the, the pills that are going around these days sometimes are creeping up into that area, which, you know, people have a lot of concern about. I mean, I was a lightweight. I only had done it like four or five times previous to that, and it wasn't nearly, it was like 0 0.0. Eight or so, you know, what I'm saying it, it wasn't nearly that amount, right? So like 80 yeah. milligrams, which is a yeah on the lower, which is actually around the the the, the area where Maps is finding that might be kind of the psych the 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 therapeutic sweet spot, even though you know yeah, a lot of people for PTSD you know, studies, right? Even though kind of most people at in sort of you know from whatever setting recreationally, whatever you want to call it, will sort of typically say sort of 125 is sort of the you know, you, the full MDMA effect and though you can go further, but you know, you might just kind of, kind of be loading on more risk at that point. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously some of these things can have an effect. You gotta make sure you drink tons of water, you're hydrated and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yet not too much water because like, right. you can also have dangerously low sodium if you get too obsessive and drink, you know, gallons of water. Sure. So yeah, yeah. You just sure. gotta stay hydrated. Bottom line. Um, 
what interests you? Like what, what's the mystery to you in what you're doing? Like, is there anything that you're focused on or interested in at the moment that, um, you feel like is like a big mystery in your field or psychedelics in general, um, or something like that? Yeah. Seeing how, how much can we figure out about what these drugs are doing in common between these different disorders and like, you know, why is it helping with all these different disorders? Like what's the, what, what's the core psychological commonality? And then I think that leaks le- links to, um, you know, the, the non-therapeutic effects, you know, just the, you know, the accounts of extraordinary experiences and people without, you know, things that they want to fix. Um, you know, what's sort of the, the, the psychological key to, to why these drugs can lead to meaningful experiences. And then, I mean, gosh, sort of going really far out there is just, um, understanding, I mean, at the extreme, even though it may not be possible, it's worth a try. Like, you know, you know, what, what does, can we do anything with these compounds to address the hard problem of consciousness? Mm. Yeah. Admitting that may, it may, the answer may be nothing, but I think it's worth, you know, consideration short of that other things that are called consciousness, like, you know, certainly, you know, um, the having a sense of self and, 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 and the sense of agency, I think these drugs can be powerful tools in understanding what's going on there. Um, what's going on with, um, uh, uh, yeah, conscious access, you know, our, our moment to moment, um, experience of consciousness, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, what's, what's going on in, in the mind at one moment versus the other, you sort of, you, you remember something, um, which pulls up in a completely different internal experience. So these other aspects of consciousness, even short of the hard problem or phenomenal consciousness, like what can these drugs, how can they be used as tools to address those kind of issues about, yeah. Do you think, do you think that, um, do you think that we go towards the phenomenological aspects of consciousness because the mechanistic, um, you know, studies and mechanistic thinking in terms of consciousness has kind of failed to this point in terms of giving us answers? Like, do you think our, we're trending towards almost like maybe consciousness being primary or panpsychism and things like this because there is no mechanistic answer at this point. And we have done tons of different studies and tried to, you know, look at the brain and, you know, we do know that the physical brain when it's injured, what's that famous case like Phineas something. He was a railroad. Yeah. Yeah. He was a railroad worker in Vermont. Yeah. yeah, Spike went through his head and he became a different person afterwards. So we do know that it has an effect, but maybe your brain's just more of like a receiver as opposed to like a, um, a hard drive. Yeah. And so nothing really addresses the question. I mean, nothing, you know, just, and that's one example, a good one, but like nothing really addresses what the ultimate causation is like whether, whatever we're calling consciousness or phenomenal consciousness, whether it's processed by biology or whether it's created by biology. So I don't know in terms of a general trend, I, you know, like you might, you know, among who amongst humans in general, to the degree, you know, not everyone thinks about these things, but people in general amongst scientists, you know, what type of science amongst psychedelic scientists amongst, I don't really have a strong amongst philosophers. I don't have a strong, I don't know. I don't know what the trend is. I, I think I like that. Certainly. Answer. I think 
it doesn't seem uh, there's not a whole lot of folks that seem to be interested in panpsychism, and I, I think that's still sort of viewed as as a uh, as sort of magic. I mean, me, I'm certainly more open to that. I mean, I've just sort of intuitively thought, you know, with the caveat is I I can't address it empirically whatsoever, but intuitively that it seems more. That seems to pass Occam's razor, some type of form of panpsychism, um, uh, Russellian monism. Uh, it, it, it passes Occam's razor better than this idea that all of a sudden you increase the complexity of matter and all of a sudden magically at one point of complexity there's an inside looking out. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's that sounds like magic you know so <laughs> there are it, people that like know, it though i mean I, we had peter shersted on who's a philosopher of mind and uh i know he's a big proponent of panpsychism right i think for good you know um you know i i, I think he has a compelling account and um it's what draws me to this you know i'm not a, a philosopher you know so um unlike him i'm not a philosopher and i you know i wish i could bring some empirical scientific tools to bear but we are um, all philosophers that's what though. they call it the hard problem yeah yeah but but yeah i think just in terms of my own personal um speculations i think that's i would if i had to put money down on one side or the other i'd put money on that side of things something like that you know something that you know like the idea that 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 what we normally see through you know, physics and chemistry and all of the sciences scaling up to biology, all of, all through observation. It's all about the interactions amongst things, and there, there could be this other aspect of existence about the, you know, to kind of sound more like, uh, would this be Huxley or Watts? Maybe both the the isness, hmm. you know, the 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 state of being of something, right? And maybe it's that state of being rather than what it interacts with or does maybe it's just the 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 essence of state of being of those things and and maybe it's not just matter maybe it's like you know who knows like maybe um time space itself maybe um em uh you know uh you know maybe you know quant quantum events i who knows i i have no idea all completely speculative but maybe there is something to these an essence to these events outside of their interactions um, that is more about this kind of phenomenal consciousness. The, the, the there's an inside to something of, of being it rather than just it being something that is subject to interactions in the world. Right. In other words, there's a subjective rather than the objective. And maybe probably what we experience clearly seems if something like that is true, clearly what we're experience would have to be some sort of highly processed for form of that, hmm. you know, but, it seems to me like something like that seems more plausible than just like all of a sudden the lights going on at some magical point. Like, why is there ever an inside to that experience? Like you can explain through complexity, why eventually the organism acts in a certain way and even says that they have an agency. But the idea that there actually is an experience in there, if there is, I only know that's true for me. (laughs) It seems like there's a magic involved there that like why that would be there at one point and not the other like right. how could you ever explain that so it's 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 terribly fascinating i love to think about it do you think we're a prisoner though so, like we since since we're all bound by consciousness and we can't observe like we observe everything 
outside of itself. So when, but we can't observe ourselves outside of ourselves unless we observe other people. But by observing other people, it's not really ourselves. I know it sounds like a conundrum, right. but do you right. think that I we're think maybe like a pr- yeah, we're prisoners, so we can't really observe this thing that that provides us all this information because we can't get outside of it. I think so. Yeah. Hmm. It's like uh, Laplace's billiard shot. You know, uh, if you were given all the calculations and data and everything, you know, that's where you get into like determinism and stuff. But maybe if there was a force outside of us, that's, you know, maybe the idea of where God came from or ever present, you know, this thing that can know everything because it has all the tools and geometry and physics and everything. So, yeah. Um, Do you have time to do a short uh, Patreon segment with us? Um, how long? I'm actually like 15, 20 minutes. A call about right now. Could we actually, which is coming in, I'll have to call them back. Could I do that at another point yeah, with you? Absolutely. absolutely. That would, I'd be happy to schedule some time to do that. Yeah, no problem, man. I appreciate your time uh, thus far, but uh, you can check out uh, Matthew's. I have his link down for his profile down at the bottom there. You can also follow him on Twitter. It's at drug underscore researcher. Uh, he's a great follow. He puts a lot of stuff out there um, having to do with psychedelic research. And, you know, you just did that whole John Hopkins playlist thing. And, um, yeah, we really appreciate uh, your time and uh, very insightful stuff. Thanks for been coming a, on, my man. You're welcome. It's been, re- it's been really enjoyable, Mike and Maurice. And, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for asking me. This has been cool. Well, look, we'll try and get you back on the show here in the future, but uh, thank you for answering our questions. Thank you for everything that you're doing, and uh, just keep doing it. Okay, will do. You too. Cheers. All right. Cheers. All right. All right. Peace, folks. We love everybody. Stay safe out there. Check everything out. Check our Patreon. Check our website, mindescapepodcast.com, and uh, we'll catch everybody next time. Peace. Mm -hmm.